1: Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, a joint podcast from The China Project and Caixin Global. We bring you the most critical business and financial news from China, the world's second largest economy. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast, part of The China Project. On this week's episode, former Chinese President Jiang Zemin, who led the country's rise on the world stage, has died at the age of 96. A major COVID testing lab has drawn public ire over false test results, and good news from Guangzhou as local officials ease COVID containment measures. With these and more, here's your business news roundup of the week. Let's jump right in. Former Chinese President Jiang Zemin died Wednesday in Shanghai due to multiple organ failure while suffering from leukemia. Born in August 1926, Zhang served as China's president from 1993 to 2003 and as general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party from 1989 to 2002. Two years later, he resigned from his post as chairman of the party's Central Military Commission after serving in the role for 15 years. During his leadership, Zhang established the basic framework of the socialist market economy system and witnessed the return of Hong Kong and Macau to Chinese rule, as well as China's entry into the World Trade Organization. Zhang, a native of Yangzhou in East China's Jiangsu province, joined the Communist Party in 1946 at the age of 19, He studied electrical engineering at Shanghai Jiao Tung University and trained at an automobile factory in Moscow during the 1950s. Zhang became minister of electronic industries in 1983 after holding several local and other central positions. Two years later, he was appointed mayor of Shanghai and subsequently party chief of the city. In a joint statement issued by China's top political and military organs, Zhang's death was described as an inestimable loss to the party, the military, and the people of all ethnic groups of China. Flags at key government buildings and Chinese embassies around the world have been flying at half-mast, while social media sites such as Weibo and e-commerce platforms Taobao and JD.com turn their home pages black and white. Jiang's remains were transferred to Beijing from Shanghai on Thursday by a special flight, which was received by President Xi Jinping and dozens of officials. A state funeral will be held at the Great Hall of the People in the capital city on Tuesday. Moving on to the country's latest COVID-19 news. Some of China's COVID testing companies are facing increasing public criticism for profiting from the country's zero-COVID strategy. This comes after a major testing lab was found to have reported false test results in multiple cities. Lanzhou Nucleus Huaxi Laboratory uploaded negative COVID-19 test results to the health codes of people who had tested positive, according to local health authorities. The lab is wholly owned by Shenzhen Nucleus Gene Technology Company. Another subsidiary of the Shenzhen Company has also been involved in other cases of testing irregularities dating back to January 2021. In Xingtai, Hebei province, authorities found at the time that the subsidiary reported all negative test results even before a round of mass testing was completed. Similar violations have been found in other areas of the country. Authorities in Beijing, Anhui, Henan, and Inner Mongolia found violations among testing institutions which have been severely punished. And some good news out of Guangzhou. Life is gradually returning to normal in the trade and manufacturing hub after it suffered one of the worst COVID-19 outbreaks in China's recent spike in virus infections. On Thursday... Some people of the metropolis reopened shops and restaurants, resumed public transportation, and removed barriers that were installed outside residential communities a day after the city government announced easing measures for COVID controls. Guangzhou, which is home to nearly 19 million people, will stop mass testing and instead apply varied testing requirements for people with different levels of risk exposure, according to city officials. Certain close contacts of COVID patients are also allowed to isolate at home instead of going to centralized quarantine sites. Guangzhou included, some cities are taking the lead in China's recent pivot from the stringent zero-COVID policy, despite reporting thousands of daily new cases. In early November, the central government issued 20 measures aimed at optimizing the country's COVID response, and among them was discouraging unnecessary and arbitrary mass testing. As local governments weigh and adopt more targeted COVID control measures, some market observers are also signaling optimism. Fan, a UBS economist, predicted that China will fully lift its COVID restrictions in the third quarter of 2023, which will lead to a dramatic economic rebound. The estimate echoes a forecast by Bloomberg economists, who offered a similar view, estimating that the country will fully reopen by mid-2023, That means there will be no lockdowns and global travelers will be allowed to enter the country freely. However, there are still some challenges to reopening, mainly in consumption and production, Hu said. She projected that China's GDP will expand by about 5% next year, compared with an estimated 3% this year. And a revival of the property sector will be crucial to support that growth. Unfortunately, though, the sector is still in crisis, despite increased rescue efforts by the government. New property sales of the 100 biggest real estate developers dropped around 26% from a year earlier to nearly 600 billion yuan in November, according to preliminary data from China Real Estate Information Corp. That's close to 80 billion U.S. dollars. That drop narrowed from a 28% decline in October. The unappealing figures underscore the challenges policymakers face in reviving the embattled industry. They have been offering a range of financing support to developers in recent weeks, aiming to help them in three main areas, bond issuance, bank loans, and stock sales. And there's the RRR, Required Reserve Ratio, cut announced last Friday that could prompt banks to drop the five-year-plus loan prime rate, a reference for mortgages, to help boost home-buying demand. But the measures have mostly been benefiting state-owned and quality private developers, while their smaller or at-risk rivals are still out in the cold. Some large companies can easily get financing even without policy support, which implies that policymakers are trying to prevent the property sector's credit risk from spreading to top players and restore investor confidence in them. As such a sustained recovery of the sector is yet to be seen. Let's turn now to this show's co-producer and Caixin Global reporter, Kelsey Chung, who joins for a deeper dive into a big story from the week. Great to see you, Kelsey.
0: Hello, Kaiser. Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: So I've got you here to talk about some good news for many Chinese individuals who may be looking for more retirement wealth building options.
0: That's right, Kaiser. China officially kicked off its long-awaited personal pension scheme a week ago on November 25th, when it designated three dozen cities and regions for the first phase of the rollout. Individuals in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou, Xi'an, Chengdu, and 31 other areas can start setting up private pension accounts, making contributions, and buying retirement-saving products. It really is a milestone for the country's rather meager personal pension market.
1: You described the local pension markets just now as meager. Can you explain how that's the case and and why?
0: Well, China runs a three-pillar pension system. The first is the state-run basic pension insurance system, and the second, employer-sponsored annuities. And the two pillars hold almost all of the pension funds. While the cumulative balance of funds in the state-run first pillar totaled more than 6 trillion yuan, that's about 830 billion U.S. dollars, in March, the dominant part of the pillar, which is made up of urban employee pensions, is expected to run out of money as soon as 2035, according to a state-backed think tank. The situation doesn't look good based on those stats, and that's partly because China has a rapidly aging population. The proportion of people aged 60 and older among the country's 1.4 billion people is expected to grow to about a third over the next decade or so, from about a fifth now. Meanwhile, the second pillar reached 4.5 trillion yuan as of March, but it just covers 72 million employees, according to government data. The third pillar, which is the personal pensions that we're focusing on today, accounted for less than 1% of the country's total pension funds in 2021. By comparison, the ratio in the US was nearly 40%, so we can see why it needs shoring up and why policy support is likely to see a very rapid expansion of the third pillar.
1: So what are the government's plans to develop the country's personal pension sector? And how is it trying to encourage more people to participate?
0: The State Council released a framework in April to develop the sector. Final rules governing the scheme have been rolled out over the past few weeks by top financial regulators to flesh out that framework, covering issues including the participation of commercial banks, wealth management companies, mutual funds and insurance firms. So under the program, people can get tax deductions on their annual contribution of up to 12,000 yuan paid into a private pension account. Also, income tax will not be levied on any investment gains, and the actual tax rate on any withdrawals from the pension account will be 3%. That's lower than the 7.5% in a pilot pension insurance program. Private pension investment products include deposits, pension target funds, commercial pension insurance, and wealth management products. And from what analysts are saying, the market is expected to take shape very quickly. Huachuang Securities predicts that funds in individual pension accounts could reach 3.4 trillion yuan, or 468 billion U.S. dollars, by 2031.
1: Kelsey, that's literally a multi-billion dollar opportunity. So how are financial institutions getting ready for that?
0: You got that right, Kaiser. And yes, financial institutions, especially banks, had already scrambled to get ready even before China fired the starting gun on the scheme last week. Since April, after the framework was announced, a number of banks had been offering pension promotions and added related features to their mobile apps, including allowing customers to deposit funds in preparation for when the system goes live. This is because each person can only open one private pension capital account, which means that once a customer is signed up, a bank could lock them in for many profitable years. Overall, banks, mutual fund firms, and insurers will each have to play to their strengths as competition is likely to be really fierce in this major battleground. Analysts say that banks' account opening services and large customer bases will give them a head start, while mutual fund firms' asset management experience could help them design long-term oriented products, insurance companies, meanwhile, are used to the kind of long-term thinking that characterizes pension investments.
1: And I believe that developing the country's third pillar goes beyond giving Chinese families more retirement wealth-building options. Is that right?
0: Yes, that's right, Kaiser. Kaiser. As more Chinese families increasingly look outside real estate as the property market slows, the government backed personal pension program is expected to boost China's capital market. Some analysts believe that more than 1 trillion yuan or 137 billion US dollars of personal pension funds could be drawn to the stock market alone by 2031.
1: All right. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us today, Kelsey. And I hope to see you again soon.
0: It's been a pleasure, Kaiser. Thank you very much.
1: And that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. The Taishin Seneca Business Brief is produced by Kaiser Guo and Kelsey Chung, Lim Jin-Bing, Jonathan Breen, and Zizan Wang at Caixin Global. Special thanks to Li Xin of Caixin Global. Thanks to Spring and Autumn for the music. Check out some of the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network, like the amazing China in Africa podcast and China Corner Office, And for daily news and views, make sure to subscribe to Access from The China Project. Again, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.